You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Today we have a really remarkable speaker. We have Brent Constance, who is an amazing inventor entrepreneur. His specialty is something we've never had discussed here before. He is a specialist in cement and has over 60 patents related to cement. Now, you might think that this isn't particularly interesting, but it is absolutely fascinating. In fact, he has started several companies in all different areas related to cement, including um, now a news company related to water desalinization, medical cement for bones in the operating room, and most recently, Calera, where they look at carbon sequestration in cement. He's going to tell us all sorts of stories and insights about being an inventor and an entrepreneur, and I can't wait. Without further ado, Brent. Thanks, Tina. Uh, Usually when I give a talk, I have technical slides, and I'm talking about one company or one project I'm working on. And this is a real treat for me. Tina asked me, you know, instead of showing us all the science, why don't you describe your entrepreneurial experiences that you've had? Because that would mean the most to the students here to hear the different experiences I've been through. So what I'm going to do is go through my last four companies that I founded and was the CEO of, and talk about a lot of similarities in some of the entrepreneurial strategies that I took and what worked and, and some of the implications of that. And, uh, you know, the first thing that came to mind, Tina, when you, you said, just talk about your experiences, uh, I thought about a, a famous local musician, Carlos Santana. And they asked Carlos, hey, hey, Carlos, what is the coolest thing about being Carlos Santana? He said, inevitably, when we go out to dinner, uh, a couple will come up to us and say, we conceived one of our children to Samba Pati, which is one of his songs. You know, how inspiring it is. And so if you ask me, what is the most inspiring thing or the coolest thing about being a serial entrepreneur? It's, it's starting companies is like kicking off an avalanche. And you can sit back and watch. And the people that join you, your employees, the whole audience, get actually more excited about it than you ever were and see things and take it new directions. And if you've ever skied powder and jumped off a cornice, some of those avalanches don't go anywhere and they fizzle out. Some of them just take off and they're out of control. And these companies are, are really like, uh, it's like building a fire. You know, fires, some smolder out, some get going, some are out of control. And, and that's really what happens when you found a company. You come up with an idea and people seize that idea, you know, investors, employees, competitors, uh, the whole world catch that idea and they take it. And, and what's the funnest thing, the coolest thing is watching that happen and, and, and where all that goes. The, uh, I wanted to start really back here at Stanford uh, in 1986. I was starting my first company and I was a fresh PhD and I linked up with uh, a guy in the B school who uh, thought it was a good idea what I was doing and helped me out and introduced me to a professor here at the time named Pitch Johnson and his class wrote my first business plan. And they wrote the best business plan and I wish we'd followed it. We didn't follow it. <laughs> but it, it was an incredible plan. At that time I was, I was 27, I was just trying to raise some seed money. And, uh, 
it was very hard to raise seed money. My, my PhD was in geology, and my subject area is called biomineralization. Which, by the way, if you want to hear about my science, I, I'm, a, I'm a consulting professor here, and I teach it in the spring. It's cross-listed in GES and in mechanical engineering in the medical school. Uh, but biomineralization is the most esoteric, geeky subject probably on the planet, and, and most people don't really pay much attention to it. But what I, I'd done at that time is decided I really wanted to do something really important. And I'd become aware at the time of uh, the problems with healthcare. And uh, I learned that the largest healthcare expenditure was fixing bone fractures. And, you know, I would have thought it was heart disease, maybe. Problem is, when you have a heart attack, you die, and you're off the books. When, when you have a hip fracture, that's when the spending starts. And uh, I was just talking to Tom. Uh, we had a, a meeting uh, that his brother helps put on down in Pebble Beach called the Medical Advice CEO Summit. And I was the only CEO invited to it for 10 years in a row. One year we had Tommy Thompson uh, down there, and he told us that healthcare expenditure is about a fifth of the of the GDP, and it, with diabetes it's going to go up to about a quarter. But the biggest part of that is actually hip fractures in postmenopausal women. It's the biggest dollar figure. And um, so I, I thought about that, and I had ideas about generating skeleton on my own uh, when I was working in the French. Uh, uh, French Polynesia in the Tuamotu archipelago, and I'd seen corals grow at incredible rates. And my PhD thesis was on how they do that, and I was able to actually make their skeletons grow in test tubes. And I thought, geez, you know, if I could do that in the operating room, that'd be phenomenal. And so I, I founded Norian, my first company. I got Pichonchen's class to build the uh, to do my business plan, and uh, went out to raise seed capital, and the first person I talked to was Jeff Pfeffer, who's still a, a professor here in the business school, and Jeff invested in my company. There was another professor named David Teese, who's now up at the Haas School at Berkeley, who invested. And uh, at that time, Sun Microsystems was really young, and Scott McNeely and Vinod Koshla and those guys were pretty young. So I used to go out with them, and, and they would pay for my, my beers and burgers, which at the time was a significant amount of money, and I really appreciated that. And uh, I, I couldn't get uh, Vinod to invest because he had just joined Kleiner Perkins, and they had some other investment, but he got his buddy Scott to invest. So Scott McNeely, who became the CEO and, uh, I guess, chairman at Sun, was my other seed round investor. And, and Scott told me a bunch of stories, and Scott, I'll, I'll, I want to relate one story that Scott and Vinod would always say. The way they found Bill Joy for Sun Microsystems is they went and interviewed dozens and dozens of people, and every time they interviewed somebody, they'd say, who's the best person in the field you know in that area? And they'd go interview that person, and then they'd keep going. And then finally, someone said Bill Joy, who was a professor at Berkeley who had written Unix that time, and uh, Andy, the grad student they'd found it with, said, oh, I know Bill, <laughs> you know? And, and, and they used that strategy, and I've used that strategy consistently, is always absolutely try to find the very best person in the world, and as I talk about some of the companies, you'll see 
some of the management that I've been able to recruit has just been insane. Uh, that, that the people have come and joined me. Um, something that I've been able to do that I think helped me came from my unique educational experience. When you study biomineralization, you have to know biology and crystallography and geology. So they're two disparate fields. It would be like, you know, politics and economics, you know, or <laughs> something like that. Uh, and uh, it's sort of like speaking two languages. Once you speak two, speaking the third's easier, and then the fourth and the fifth and all that. To be able to be cross-disciplinary and talk across fields is extremely important because you bring the ignorance from outside the field, and ignorance is bliss. You don't see that it's not a problem. So I went, when I went out to the first orthopedic surgeons and said, hey, why are you guys pinning these fractures together? You know, the screws don't even hold. It causes pain. They don't work. The patient's in the hospital, dies of deep vein thrombosis. Why don't you just do something to get them up and walking? Let's just cement the fracture. That, that was a, a, an insane concept. You know, when we went into the FDA and talked to them, they didn't even know whether I was talking about a drug or a device. Uh, but had I been trained in orthopedic surgery or even uh, knew anything about it, I never would have thought, well, let's cement the fractures instead of pinning them together. Um, the Norian experience uh, allowed me to go out, raise capital, get a company going. It was an interesting time that maybe some of the students can relate to. I just finished my PhD. I was doing a postdoc at the U.S. Geologic Survey over here on Middlefield. And I'd just been given a Fulbright to go to uh, the Weitzman to, uh, to work on my area. And I, I was going to take a professorship at Caltech. And the founder of my field was going to be at the Weitzman with me to kind of train me before I went back to Caltech to start my academic career. Uh, and I was in the middle of starting a company. Uh, and, and to my parents' disappointment, uh, all my professors' disappointment, uh, uh, they said, you know, you're crazy to go start a company. Um, and uh, my wife supported me, and I got it started and, and got it going. So it's not always easy to start a company. It was very hard to get the money together to get that going. But we ended up raising about $56 million in uh, venture capital and uh, probably another $30 million in um, you know, other grants and corporate deals and things like that. And you know, the first thing, I, I think one of the lessons learned from the Norian experience is anytime you go out and do something new and you're addressing the largest healthcare expenditure in the United States, there's a lot of incumbents. There are people that are on that gravy train already that you're disrupting. So if you go to a large orthopedic company and tell them, well, you know, the, the uh, $4 billion worth of hip implants you're selling, we got a better way to do it. it have less pain and suffering. It's going to cost less. It's going to be better for everybody. Or you tell an orthopedic surgeon who, after medical school, did their internships and spent seven years of residency learning how to put those hip implants in, we're not going to need you guys, <laughs> you know. It's really hard to get things adopted. And, and what was really interesting is even at that time, even though the biggest fracture I was trying to address was the hip fracture, and everyone heard the story, grandmother fell down, went to the hospital, she didn't come home because she died of pneumonia in the hospital or something. That's because these fractures are so t tough. 
Um, the, the other one I really wanted to get was the vertebral fracture, especially in Asia, you'll see an older postmenopausal woman like this. And these are lumbar vertebral fractures, which had never been treated before except with uh, calcium, vitamin D, uh, pain pills, and go home. And they would go see the endocrinologist. And at that time, uh, my board, my venture board, said, no one treats that. You have to go into an existing field. <laughs> you know, and compete with those big hip companies. And uh, I said, but yeah, this, there's 550,000 of these vertebral compression fractures in the spine every year, and there's little ladies going through pain, and, you know, it's, it's terrible. Why, why don't we work on that? And we ended up not working on it, and another company was spun off from Norian at that time called Kaifon. And uh, Kaifon had a hard road. It took him almost two decades to do it. But uh, they were sold to Medtronic for $3.9 billion uh, just a couple of years ago because they stuck to the, the, the plan, the original mission, the original idea. Now, Norian is part of Synthase, which has the world's largest market share in the fracture market, and that product's in every operating room in the world that does orthopedic surgery. And it's helping out a lot of people. Uh, but, you know, it's really interesting. I see this with all my companies. You have the big initial vision, and in almost every case, that's the right vision. You know, and, and as you go along, especially investors uh, who want to see something very tangible very soon, will find easier ways to monetize your inventions and really not get it, get it to the full uh, extent of where, where you would like to take it. So it's... Uh, it's interesting, in, in coming up with a, a, a big idea, I think if you're going to go forward with it, what you really want to do is make sure you're, you're building that company, which is one reason, and I'll, I'll go forward to this later, uh, that, that I think uh, Vinod Kosh and I get along, because Vinod's a big thinking guy, and you know, he's built billion-dollar companies, and he tells his management team, you know, are you building a $100 million company or a billion-dollar company? Because a lot of people would be happy to build a $100 million company. But he's gone out to build billion-dollar companies. With the last company, Calera, the vision was really to build a trillion-dollar company in that case. But if you're building a trillion-dollar company, then you're doing everything differently from the very beginning. You're not going off on little side markets or small opportunities. You're, you're sticking to your gun and focusing on the big idea as you go forward. Well, Norian got into clinical trials, and uh, you know we had a 225-patient prospective randomized trial. We went to the FDA. We had international subsidiaries. Uh, I started in 87. This would be sort of 95 era. We were approved in many foreign countries, uh, treating patients and having uh, Really, really good results. And what we found at that time was that we could go out with this new technology, but what we really had to do was train the customers and train them with a whole new paradigm. And it wasn't just a product. And we learned about the concept of you really going out and selling the whole product you know, to the, to the customer, going to the operating room. We developed the concept of a new standard of care so that people could think about things completely differently. So we went all the way back 
to when the person showed up at the emergency room. So it wasn't just another box on the shelf in the operating room, but it was a whole new standard of care from the beginning to the end, the economics and everything. And, and that was, Stanford was very incremental, I mean, important there as well. Amy Ladd, Amy and I are, uh, I guess I can say this, we're the same age. She looks about 10 years younger, though. She's the chief of, uh, of orthopedics, uh, of hand surgery at Stanford. And we grew up together, and we treated all these cases, and Stuart Goodman and a number of the surgeons here, and we, we did studies and we published, you know, the New England Journal of Medicine, orthopedics, and all the best journals. And I think we had over 200 peer-reviewed journal articles on what we did. And that's how, how we really sold this idea and this concept. It included economics, included a lot of other things. And in doing so, um, I learned another important lesson, and, and I'm learning it over and over again. And anything I do, when you come up with crazy ideas, you have to gain credibility no matter how good the crazy idea is. And so what I've always done is assemble fantastic advisory boards. So at Norian, my board, I had an advisory board with the you know, president of the Marion Academy of Surgery, the president of Orthopedic Research Society, you know, the most famous endocrinologists on the planet, uh, people like that who could back up everything we're doing, work with us. Some of them would come in-house and work with us for a long period of time. The other, other thing, and, and this would probably be the most valuable thing I learned in, in all these experiences, is I learned how to craft an operating plan for a company. And this is a plan that's put together by the company with not just the classic mission, but objectives, goals, goals that have lives of three or four years, and under each goal, uh, there'd be milestones with a date and an action that we would accomplish every quarter. And every quarter, I'd take most of the company off-site, and we'd make a new quarterly operating plan. And then we'd stop planning and go do it. And it was, it's been, in all my companies, incredibly effective in terms of accomplishing things and moving things fast <laughs> and having everyone bought into it and assigning accountability to everybody. And the operating plan ended up being uh, a very important thing. Norian teed up their S1 in, uh, in 1996. And, uh, you know, when, when a company gears up to go public, especially in the days that we have now with Sarbanes-Oxley, you can't be a startup anymore. You have to be, uh, you're going to be living in a completely different world. And... Um, Every, everything about a company changes uh, when, you, when you try and take it into a, a public arena. Norian ended up uh, getting acquired, and something that happens when you tee up a public offering is you're ripe for acquisition. And when you have a lot of cash in the bank and you've got a great company, that, can hap that, can, that happens. Um, that's when I came over here to Stanford. Uh, I had another thing uh, <coughs> happen at that time. My, uh, my oldest son was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, it was a good time for me to be here on campus because I could, he was at Lucille Packard. And uh, I was here for six months or so. And uh, I got together with the heart surgeons, Tom Fogarty, who some of you might know. He's a vascular surgeon here, invented the Fogarty catheter. Uh, uh, Paul Yock, who invented the rapid exchange catheter. 
and, and they, uh, within a few days, and a lot of the other people in the community, we put a company together because they were having issues with another really big problem in cardiovascular medicine, which was um, uh, the calcification, the mineral growth on heart valves and arteries. You've probably heard of calcified arteries. And most of the amputations every year of uh, people's legs, for example, are from calcified arteries that they can't revascularize. And uh, it didn't take long to come up with the big idea. And the big idea was, well, let's do what bone itself does. There are specialized cells in bone that dissolve through it. And the mineral that forms in bone uh, actually is very similar to bone mineral. And so we, we devised with the leaders in the field, some of the most sophisticated catheters probably ever designed with incredible plumbing to go into a total uh, occlusion of the femoral artery, uh, calcified aortic valves. We had an, an open heart procedure where we, when the heart was stopped, we could decalcify the aortic valve or when uh, we even had a beating heart approach. So while the heart was beating, we could decalcify the aortic valve and that company just got funded right away, and we were off and running. And uh, it uh, really grew into very quickly quite a company. We, we had heart-lung machines in, in the lab where we would bring in hearts and decalcify them and do the whole procedure and get it going. And it, uh, it, got, uh, it got acquired very quickly. Now, what happened with my son during that time is he was declared cancer-free, and then the cancer came back, and it was clear he was going to die. And he died in, uh, I think, June of, uh, June of 2000. And uh, Johnson & Johnson ended up buying the company and making it part of uh, Cordis. But that's when I really uh, had a, a one big inspiration. You know, when it was clear he wasn't going to live, uh, one of the things I, I wanted him to do was to uh, go diving on a coral reef. And uh, so we did, we did a lot of things uh, before he died, and that was one of the things. And I realized at that time, you know, it's not just my son who's not going to see a coral reefs. It's all our children. Like most of you in the audience, your children are never going to see a coral reef. And the coral reefs are changing today. I have trouble finding coral reefs worth diving on today compared to my experience diving all over the world using submarines and all that. That's how fast the climate is changing today. And it's not just the, the aesthetic value of seeing a coral reef. It's actual implications for what we were doing in our life. And at that point, I was, I was really, in my career, a medical guy. And... Uh, but I, I, at that, I knew at that time that I had a strong inspiration to do something environmentally. And uh, I uh, was approached by a number of the employees from my first company who um, um, really didn't like working for a billion-dollar company. And they said, come on, man, you got another company. Let's go do it. And it turned out I thought up some chemistry that was better than the first company's cement. And so one of the things I did with this is we got the team, we got the band back together. We actually hired, got one of the old buildings we'd been in, took our old offices. And uh, it was sort of a, a stunning experience. We, uh, we got together in August. Uh, by Christmas of, let's see, it was 2002 by that point, uh, 
we had our formulation. By New Year's, we'd uh, done animal surgeries and put this cement in animals. And by uh, Valentine's Day, we'd made an FDA application with our data. By Memorial Day, we had FDA approval. And by the 4th of July, the FDA had come in and inspected our manufacturing facility and we were shipping product to hospitals in less than a year, which is, is a record for any kind of medical product. Uh, Interestingly, with that company, um, prior to the first two companies, which had been venture capital funded, and when you take venture capital money in Silicon Valley, you need to understand that uh, the game is all set up for the venture capitalists, not for the entrepreneurs. Because if you're a lawyer and you have a law firm here, you might see that entrepreneur three or four times at the most in your life, but you're going to see that venture capitalist every week. And so all the documents are written for venture capitalists. Uh, and I thought, gee, you know, I played that game twice. I don't want to play it again. So my third company, I just put, actually, it isn't even a, wasn't even a C corporation. It was what we call an LLC. Um, everybody were members, uh, funded ourselves, uh, you know, got checks from the you know, famous orthopedic surgeons. And uh, we're selling product and we're profitable with no outside investment, no professional investors very soon. And it was an enjoyable experience. And, and the, the main thing about it was there was only one person on the board, and that was me, and we always got along. There was never any controversy, you know. Uh, and it, it's, 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 a, it's kind of a sad thing, but board of directors debilitate companies. And it's, it's, it's not intended, but uh, the reality of the situation is if you have a board meeting every month, your management team's going to spend a day or two just preparing for the board meeting. And then they're going to spend a day or two just recovering from the board meeting. And, and, and typically, most, most venture capitalists are on more than one board. And even though you send out the board package days ahead of time, FedEx and all that, they... Uh, they show up at the board meeting, opening the board package, make a lot of shoot-from-the-hip decisions, and then at the next board meeting, they ask you, well, why'd you make that decision? <laughs> and so it, it literally takes about 20% of the management team's time. And what I learned in that one company is by not having a board and by actually being able to be facile and operate quickly, you've just gained 20% of your time. And you've lowered everyone's stress level a lot, and you're allowed to pursue your original vision. And that's what we were able to do there. It was successful. I made more money off that company than the other two combined. And I, I still am. It's all over the world. It's in operating rooms. It's a better product than the first product. And they're competing. Um, so, uh, you know, if there's no competition, generate your own. <laughs> uh, but that, that was uh, a great company. Uh, and uh, I... It was acquired, and I, I ran it under uh, the new company as CEO uh, until I came back over here to Stanford. And at that point, I was going to retire for sure. And uh, I uh, still had this aching desire to do something on the environment. And through interactions with the Woods Institute, I learned that the production of cement was the third largest source of anthropogenic CO2. 
So the first is tailpipes, right, from cars only, but, you know, the maritime industry and the airlines. Second is the production of electrical power uh, by burning fossil fuels, mainly coal, burning coal. And the third is the production of Portland cement, which is the cementing component of concrete. And one thing about concrete is uh, it's one of the largest markets, if not the largest market, depending how you count it. It's in the trillions of dollars. And half of all building materials are concrete. Concrete's the most traded material other than water in the whole world. When the concrete stops flowing, the whole economy stops. It happened here in Northern California in 1978. Everything shut down. Um, and if you look at the 28 billion or so tons that humans put into the uh, atmosphere of CO2 every year, about 3 billion of those tons come from the production of Portland cement. And uh, it's interesting that uh, it seemed quite easy to me to just produce a different type of cement that, that wouldn't produce CO2. And uh, that really didn't take long for, for me to come up with that and file the patents because I'd already made lots of different types of cement. And uh, I got uh, hold of my old buddy Vinod Koshla and I'd heard he was uh, working in the clean tech space. And we put a company together real quickly without a business plan. So Nor Calera, which has raised somewhere near $200 million, uh, has never written a business plan. Uh, and uh, so what I like to say about business plans is, number one, the only people that read them are your competitors. Uh, number two, they're the only thing that's never going to happen. You know? It's like when I play golf, I, I tell my partners, if you want to be safe, go stand near the flag, because I'm never going to get it there. <laughs> yeah. uh, but... Uh, Clara is an exciting company, which has a bouquet of opportunities that could really impact the world uh, at this time. Um, the, uh, we, we set off, and we had a lab of uh, about eight ladies. And we, I say that because I was the only male employee for some reason. But, uh, and we got, uh, uh, we were making cement within about six months. And Vinod was over there one day, and we noticed that our limiting raw material was carbon dioxide. And uh, so I asked Vinod, where can I get some carbon dioxide? Because <laughs> I, I wasn't aware, I just wasn't aware. I was involved with deep sea coral projects with Rob Dunbar here and looking at the ocean over the last 10,000 years and all that, but I just wasn't aware that people were really interested in actively sequestering CO2. And I thought immediately, gee, you know, if, if you did this, you could make cleaning up the environment a prosperous activity. It wouldn't be a tax or a, a negative thing that no one's going to want to do or governments have to force people to do. It's something people will do because they're going to make money doing it. If, if you could take CO2 as a raw material and make stuff out of it, well, then you wouldn't have to go mine a bunch of limestone and put it in kilns and create CO2. So it would be a twofer. You'd avoid the CO2 going to the atmosphere but also displace the CO2 that would have been created by making Portland cement. And, and th this, to, to this day, is one of the interesting strategic aspects of cholera. And it goes back to some of the earlier discussions about do, you, do your founding vision 
Do you look at other opportunities that come up? Today, there's no price on carbon, not in the United States. We're the only country in the world that doesn't have a price on carbon. But even if we did have a price on carbon, what if it was $10 a ton? You know, I mean, we can sell a ton of cement for $100 a ton. And for every ton of CO2 that we capture, we can make two tons of cement. So the economics, the prosperous thing that will induce the Chinese and the Indians to do this, is actually uh, works very well based on a, a profitable product. Now, I'm in favor of carbon legislation. I'm very glad AB 32 has stuck up, and, and we're going to get that, because the way California goes is the way the world goes with regard to carbon legislation. But the fact is that the fundamental economics of thinking about climate change don't make any sense to me. You know, uh, Professor Sokoloff at Princeton says we have to mitigate about 7 billion tons of CO2 a year. And he has seven wedges, you know, renewables, energy efficiency, and how we're going to do that. And we're not anywhere close to doing that, but of the 28 billion tons of CO2 we're putting in the atmosphere, we're thinking we want to mitigate 7 billion tons. Well, remember, 3 billion tons can be mitigated just by replacing Portland cement with one of my cements. So that's half the, the wedge. Um, but the, the way we're thinking about it, and this really came through in Copenhagen, where it was the, the, the rich world holding their wallet and the, the developing world asking to be paid not to pollute. The Chinese say they need about $100 a ton not to pollute. Okay? And say we need to mitigate 10 billion tons. 10 billion times $100 is a trillion dollars. You know, so you can talk to your blue in the face that let's pay the Chinese not to pollute. But it doesn't matter. There's not a trillion dollars a year to pay the Chinese not to pollute. You know, we'd have to borrow the money from them, then pay them, and they don't even have that much to loan us. So the fundamental concept of cap and trade just doesn't work. But the concept of being able to induce people economically to create a green economy by creating prosperous activities that also make a clean environment is huge. There's other fantastic aspects to what Calera is doing. When you make concrete, about 20% of the concrete is cement. The other 80% is what we call aggregate. And aggregate is rock. And here in Northern California, we get about 60% of our aggregate from British Columbia. It's barged down because there are not enough quarries here. And it has to be mined. And it's actually limestone. It's very similar to the Calera cement itself. It's a carbonate. It's, it contains carbon. Most of the carbon on the planet is not in the atmosphere. It's not in the oceans. It's in the lithosphere in the form of limestone. Like 99% of all the carbon on the planet is sitting in limestone on the planet. And the way you make Portland cement is you calcine limestone, which releases that CO2. But Calera also has the potential to go beyond that 3 billion tons by replacing Portland cement and taking some of the 9 billion tons that coal-fired power plants put in and doing that to 
preventing an enormous amount of mining, which, uh, whether you realize it or not, how much coal do you think is mined every year? About 5 billion tons, and it's, it's almost all shaft mining. How much rock do you think is mined every year? 40. About 40 billion tons. Yeah, about seven times as much, and it's all open pit mining, and it's environmentally destructive and non-sustainable. So, so it's a very, very interesting part of everything that's going on. But as I've worked through this, I've also learned how challenging climate change is going to be. I mean, the big idea that Calera can do the whole thing is there. The technology is going to have to be developed, and it's worth sticking to it. But the company has to decide, do we take some of the near-term opportunities, work in countries where there is a price on carbon, for example, you know, and just do carbon mitigation, or, or just make cement, make money doing that. There's a lot of interesting strategic questions that Calera has in front of it today. But no matter how you look at it, the challenge for our grandchildren is, is phenomenal. Half, half of India is under the age of 14, and coal is their source of electricity. China is building more wind power than anybody, but coal is their source of electricity. Here in the United States, it's 51% of our electricity. If we went full bore with all the renewables we could, it might be 49% in 20 years. So our future, whether we want it or not, involves coal. And that means there's going to be a lot of CO2. And part of the thinking today is uh, we better start looking at adaptation. Not that we've lost the battle, not that we shouldn't keep trying. And, and hopefully, Calera is extraordinarily successful. But we really need to look at adaptation. <laughs> And instead of paying the Chinese to build windmills in Western China that aren't connected to anything because they're getting clean development mechanisms to do that and they're just spinning and delivering electricity to nobody, maybe we should be building seawalls in Bangladesh before millions of people are uh, displaced. I, with Calera especially, I've had an opportunity to meet a lot of interesting people. Uh, you know, We've had Colin Powell, Tony Blair out. Hank, Hank uh, Paulson, Bill Gates, a lot of interesting folks. And something everyone realizes is the, the, the daunting size of climate change and the political implications of what could happen. You know, uh, if you look at the Hindu, Hindu Kush and the Himalaya glaciers, uh, eight of the rivers flowing out uh, feed a third of the world's population their water. And whether you believe in climate change or not, those glaciers are going. And, and the Chinese are having to decide right now between hydropower and drinking water today. And it's not going the other way. You know, it's not a seasonal fluctuation. Uh, and so if you think about, well, what are the main things that our grandchildren are going to have to deal with with regard to adaptation? What are they? You know, well, sea level rise, I, I can imagine that. You know, in Bangladesh, it's hard to imagine. That, that'll be devastating. But most of the world, I can imagine that, dealing with that. Um, the biggest thing is probably going to be drought. You know, and Mar Mark Twain said, what did he say? People pay money for whiskey, but they go to war over water. And... Uh, so I've become extremely interested in water. We had a project in Australia, one of the 
dirtiest coal-fired power plants funded by the state of Victoria, where we will be producing fresh water at a site 110 kilometers inland that's been in drought for over a decade from the brine water we take up to combine with the flue gas. And uh, I've become more and more interested in it, and even locally, uh, Calera has their plant down on Monterey Bay here at Moss Landing. Uh, and we have a permit to pump about 60 million gallons of seawater a day into our demo plant down there. Uh, and being really, uh, a, a lot of my background is in oceanography. I used to deep dive and take submarines down and collect corals and all that. And uh, I know that the deepest submarine canyon in the whole world comes right in at Moss Landing, right where the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute is. And it has the clearest, freshest, deep water close into shore anywhere in the world. And one problem we have here in California is we need about a million gallons of water, at least. I mean, sorry, a million acre feet of water, which is about a million gallons a day. And uh, so uh, we've been unable to permit a lot of uh, coastal desalination plants because of the concern of taking organisms from the top of the ocean. and we're in a tough spot. But being an oceanographer, I know that if you go down to the depth where only 1% of the light at the surface exists, there's no chlorophyll because there's no photosynthesis going on. And then there's no, not much life and not much of a food chain. So we have this unbelievable opportunity I'm pursuing right now to go out deep into the canyon, Monterey Canyon, onto a site I've been operating for a few years now with uh, 200 acres of infrastructure and permits and pipes out into the canyon and provide, hopefully, initially 10,000 acre feet of water to Monterey County and Santa Cruz County in a local project, which for me is really a blast because I've only worked on international you know, products that have gone everywhere. And to, to do something locally has, has been really fun for me. And uh, I'm really excited about the work we're doing. And the water we're going to produce is going to have a much lower carbon footprint than any other form of desalinating water because we're starting with very pure water and it doesn't have the other problems that groundwater has like chrome 6 and other things like that. So that's been an exciting project that I've I've gotten going. But uh, I could say a lot, but I've exceeded my 40 minutes, so I better cut it off. Right. Well, we have time now for questions from the audience. But as we normally do, we're going to ask Heidi Roizen to ask the first question on behalf of the Spirit of Entrepreneurship class. Thank you very much. That's fantastic. Um, one of the students who takes the class remotely, who's probably watching right now, fielded a question online, and so we picked that question this week to launch for you. We talk a lot about entrepreneurship and company formation, all of that, and, and this student was really curious about the fact that you said with Calera, in one month you brought 40 people on board. Um, I think it was Calero. Now I'm thinking that maybe it was the company before that, given what you just described. But he wondered how in the world did how in the world did you bring 40 people on board at once, and and how did you build a culture around bringing that many people in so quickly? Yeah, well, that, that happened uh, at Calero for sure, a, a few months in a row because we did we go, went through. I mean, you have to understand Calero is just about three years old, and, and it's uh, it's already uh, got quite a management team. But we've always. Uh, really just gone back to that earlier principle that I told you about, is just kill ourselves to get the very, very best people uh, you can get. And, uh, you know, you need management that can sell snow to Eskimos. And 
And uh, you got to have people drinking the Kool-Aid. So if you identify someone who you want, you know, it, th this sounds kind of mean, but I think with Vinod, it's almost a challenge to me. You know, it, I mean, when Vinod said, I bet you can't recruit that person. <laughs> and, and we've been able to recruit anybody. I mean, anybody. So what about questions from others in the audience? Who's got a question? Yes, over here. Speak um, really loud. All right. So like when, for example, entrepreneurs come and like say they have like an idea and they want like to bring a product to the market, most of the time from what I've read and what I've heard, um, they're not thinking about, I want to make a lot of money off this. They just say, oh, I, I, I want to change the world, for example. And I have this really great idea and I can, um, I've, I've got a really great solution to this problem, which is unmet right now. Um, but in like the practical sense, once they start to sort of see the venture capital side and, and the, the money capital side, um, they sort of have to say, like, is this feasible? Um, you know, is this financially responsible to create this product? So how much, um, like, at, sort of at what point do you um, look at the financial implications of of the product that you created to change the world, but now might not be um, financially right. responsible. Well, you know, th there's the real world, and then there's Silicon Valley. You know, and, and uh, I think uh, with my third company, I, I learned a lot about just building a business with your own money. You know, and, and not setting your goals too high. And if if I if I notice one common fault in everything I've done, it's that I've set my uh, goals too high which is, is great, you know, if you want to go build that trillion dollar company. But it's a lot easier to fail. Um, and I think, you know, choosing something that you know is doable, that you can go out and get accomplished without having to raise an enormous amount of capital and tell a fantastic story is a good, good way to go as well. Uh, I remember with Norian, the first company, they said, uh, well, you know, it's going to take you $50 million and five years to go through prospective randomized multi-center trials in orthopedic surgery. But you know what? There's more root canals than there are hip fractures. And, and we could make $15 off each root canal. And we can get FDA approval for that in 90 days. You know, and so let's become a root canal company. And so we wasted about a year and a bunch of money to do periodontal defects. And it was a total waste of time. You know, dentists pay for things with their credit cards. You know, it's, just wasn't what you wanted to do. So it's a constant tension. Uh, it's true to, to, to really get these guys managing these big funds to invest in something. You better have just a big story with a fantastic return on investment. And that's really different than the way most people start businesses. You know, I'm learning that uh, in Monterey, we're forming a joint powers authority with the local water districts floating a municipal bond to fund the building of a $100 million desal plant, working with local banks. It's a completely different story. And I think it's possible for entrepreneurs to work outside of the Silicon Valley environment. You know, don't hire a Silicon Valley lawyer. As soon as you hire a Silicon Valley lawyer, it, your, your company is set up for venture investment. And that's the road you're going. And I'm not saying don't. I'm just saying that's the, the direction you're going to go. Cool. Okay. Great. Right over here. 
You talked about your ability to recruit people and recruit top talent, but then you also talked about your displeasure kind of the frustration with having a board of directors. But wouldn't you say that having a board of directors is also pretty helpful in attracting top talent? And I was wondering kind of what your thoughts were not having a board and if you ever faced disadvantages there. Uh, I haven't had that experience. You know, I, I, uh, I, sometimes uh, you can use a board member to help recruit people. And especially if you're weak at recruiting people, then the board could recruit the whole team around you. And that, that might be a strategy. But um, generally, uh, when I identify somebody that I want to bring in, I'll uh, screen them through my entire management and let them do their homework on us. Uh, and then when we've decided who we're going to hire, uh, then we'll give them the opportunity to meet members of the board of directors. I think a, a board can be valuable, but a board can also be disastrous, de depending how it works. Um, I guess the point is when the company puts up risk factors, you know, the technology won't work, we'll run out of money, the management won't get along, all the things that can kill a company Unfortunately, one of the top three or four things is always we'll have board instability, and that'll kill the company. Great. Right over here. Yep. Um, you talked about how you didn't figure out that carbon dioxide could be sequestered until later on in your process of developing the cement, but you also talked about how the first uh, inspiration for you to go that route was to try to find a green resolution to the right. problem. So how did, like, did you have a plan before that, or did you just kind of happen upon this? You see, uh, just replacing Portland cement without sequestering CO2 from some other source, just not using Portland cement and using something else that didn't produce CO2 would reduce the annual anthropogenic CO2 by 3 billion tons, even if you never sequestered a single molecule of CO2. So the initial inspiration was just to replace Portland cement. Great. Okay. Uh, I actually wanted to ask a question about carbon trading. Uh, I, I was reading an article. Credit Suisse actually listed carbon as a commodity in the market now. And there's a billion dollar trade going on in the carbon. So now your technology plans to take away, like, I, mean, I mean, it's actually taking away the carbon. I mean, don't you think, don't you see the market as a threat to your technology? Like, I mean, there are people trading billions of dollars in that. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Um, do you know, the, the biggest supporters uh, of Kyoto and also uh, the treaties we're trying to get are actually British Petroleum and these people, because they actually saw that they make more money trading carbon than exploring for and selling oil. And, and so it's, it's incredible. There's already carbon markets, you know, operating all over the world, and the one in Europe really doesn't necessarily encourage anybody to stop polluting. There's a lot of ways around it. It's, it's just fundamentally, it grows out of the legal theory that polluters should clean up their mess. And uh, the Clean Air Act grew out of that. And the Clean Air Act has been the most successful environmental legislation that I know of. And it works extremely well for, say, SO2. But SO2 is in the parts per million. And so you can pay people not to put SO2 into the atmosphere. The problem is there's so much CO2 
and there's so few alternatives that there's just not enough money to pay people to do that. You know, one of the things the U.S. government is looking at and other governments is actually separating CO2 from flue gas. And doing that would take about a third of the power of the plant, of a coal plant, just to separate it. And then paying companies like Halberton to transport it and paying other companies to inject it into the ground and other companies to monitor it for decades so that it won't leak out, like happened in that lake in Africa and killed a whole village of thousands of people in a few minutes, uh, as a viable approach. And uh, there's $3 billion of stimulus money <laughs> that are being spent on that. Uh, and it could never, even under the best scenario, sequester more than a few hundred million tons a year for a few decades. And it wouldn't have any effect on uh, our grandchildren's life or anything. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the manipulation of the financial markets is, a, is almost unbelievable. And it really... It, in my opinion, isn't going to do anything for our grandchildren. Okay. Okay. Are you worried about competition with Calera? I hope there's competition. I mean, people tell me, you know, the Chinese are going to rip off Calera. And I say, great. More power to them. That would be the best thing for the world. First of all, there's plenty of CO2. I've learned by selling cement in China that you're not going to make any money in China anyway. Uh, and... and uh, you know, I, I gave a, a lecture to a group of uh, Chinese executives from a province south of Shanghai recently, and uh, they've already sort of started adopting the Calera process because it's so publicly known. If you go to Calera's website, Calera has over 200 patent applications that are published. There's nothing secret about Calera. And, you know, I really think that Calera is bigger than Calera Corporation, which is the Delaware Corporation that's been incorporated and funded. I think the concept, like I said originally about an avalanche, it's already out there. I can go, you know, I was at the COP16 conference. People all over the world are aware that you can convert flue gas into carbonates, then transform them into aggregate and rock. There's a lot of trick in it. Um, but I'm convinced that the only place to put the CO2, if we really want to mitigate CO2, is in the built environment on the surface of the Earth where it's stable and it ain't going to go anywhere, and, and also bring the criteria pollutants and the other things. It's, 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 in my opinion, the most sensible, really only place to put it, and we've got the technology now. But I'm already aware of other technologies being developed for various parts of the Calera process that they, they could be fit into it to make it even better. Super. Over there. Um, your idea sounds truly great, and I think your company is really on a track to change the world. And it's almost borders on the fact that it's too good to believe that you can have the cake and eat it as well. And when I was doing research online, there's a lot of critics that say that your process is not really grounded on factual information and that you give vague evidence. So how do you respond to criticism that say that your process is not scalable as well as it might not actually work? So how do you respond? Yeah. Well, um, you know, the, uh, I mean, well, it, first of all, I'll say it's funny because, you know, I've been in the medical field and when you're in medicine, everyone's like, hope you do it, man. You know, I mean, I hope you make the world a better place. Um, what I've learned uh, is in the climate community, there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of academic people trying to get funding. 
you know, even the Gates Foundation, you know, I, Bill Gates is a limited and, and I mean, he, he has in money in cholera and, uh, you know, the, the advisors to the Gates Foundation, you know, one of whom had started a blog about cholera, you know, uh, had, had said a lot of things and these were people that didn't have any basic skills in crystallography or making cement and really had no basis to make these claims. But part of the reason was they're operating in a different paradigm. The paradigm they're operating in is let's separate the CO2 and inject it into the ground and then get paid by some government subsidy to do that. And that's not the paradigm Claire is operating in. The paradigm Claire is operating in is let's make cleaning up the environment a prosperous activity that's profitable and not base whether it's feasible to scale on having a price on carbon, but base whether it's feasible to scale economically on will they buy the cement. And uh, frankly, what's going to happen as the price of carbon comes on is the price of Portland cement's going to increase. Because for every ton of cement they sell, they're going to have to pay whatever that price is for the ton of CO2 they put out. So the price of cement is going to increase. The price of Calera cement is going to decrease half as much because it's half a ton of CO2 per ton of Calera cement. And so uh, it's only going to help Calera as a price of carbon comes on, but we're just not operating in the cap and trade paradigm when we do the economics of our plants. But also, Calera is three years old. It's incredible the amount of progress Calera has made in three years. And if I think where they're going to be in a year, two years, or three years, a lot of the challenging uh, problems will be even more interesting. But, you know, I think in funding this recent uh, $45 million matching funds grant that the, was publicly announced from the Department of Energy to Calera, I think the DOE was really looking at all the alternatives and how economically scalable they'll be. Right, we'll take one more question. Right back there. Yep. Speak really loud. So you talked about how the big vision is important to maintain the initial vision for a company. It sounds like Calera's initial vision has to do with selling cement that is not Portland cement and is taking away CO2 from the environment. With what you're doing with water now, is that under Calera? And does that fit in? No, it's, uh, it's just a new venture. Uh, the, the fact that uh, we're doing it at Moss Landing, uh, which is where the other Calera plant is, we're just right next door to each other. And, uh, but I do think it can be expanded beyond uh, Monterey Bay. You know, maybe Marin County, uh, down the coast, really all over the world. Uh, there's, there's a company called Water Standards that uh, takes large ships out on the ocean, and they put a straw down deep in the ocean to avoid the, the life in the top. And that way, they're able to desalinate the way we're proposing on shipboard and then bring the ship to shore, pump the water on board. But I, my, my one comment about that is, uh, and Vinod always tells me, the companies that have their founders usually do better. And, and, and my wife pointed out there was an article in the uh, San Jose Mercury over the weekend uh, that said, you know, it pointed out how clearly companies with their founders are, are always more successful. And I think it's because someone needs to keep the vision. Great. Yeah. On that note, I hope you'll join me in thanking Brent Thompson.
You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.